Hello and welcome back to The Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 63 called The Virtual King of Italy. In the last episode, we heard how the Emperor Majorian tried to save the Western Empire. He began by reasserting Roman rule in Gaul and parts of Spain. His overriding aim was to recover Carthage from the Vandals. And there's no doubt that if he'd succeeded, the course of history might have been very different. But it was not to be. Geyseric, the Vandal king, was far too clever for him and destroyed his fleet of 300 ships in southern Spain in a surprise attack. Now, our sources say that the success of the Vandal raid was due to Roman traitors, presumably because they gave away the location of the Roman fleet. Who were these traitors? Our sources don't say. Maybe they were simply Spanish Romans who were paid by the Vandals. Or maybe they were supporters of Ricimer, the main general in the Western Empire, who was getting increasingly uncomfortable with Majorian's success. For as I mentioned in the last episode, when Majorian returned to Rome in August 461, Ricimer intercepted him, arrested him, tortured him, and then had him beheaded. Now, Ricimer clearly regarded Majorian as a threat to his own power. One historian has written that Ricimer was, quote, a cold, calculating, sinister man who hesitated at no crime, no murder, no treason or perfidy to maintain himself securely in power, end quote. Now, that sounds a fair description, but to be honest, most politicians at the top of the Roman Empire were like that. Just look at the way Valentinian III murdered Aetius, and also how Aetius murdered and backstabbed his way to the top. What made Ricimer different was that he wasn't Roman. He was a German warlord. Of course, he wasn't the first German warlord. The decline of the Roman army over the last hundred years meant that independent German tribal groupings became the main military units in the empire, especially in the West. The first example was Alaric and his Goths. They formed a mercenary army which Theodosius used against the Roman Western field army in his civil wars. But the problem for the Romans was that German warlords could be fickle. At one moment, Alaric fought for Theodosius. Fifteen years later, he sacked Rome. Stilicho was another German general, but unlike Alaric, he was loyal to Rome. He was also different because he'd been trained in the Roman army and commanded a mixed force of barbarians and traditional Roman units, so he wasn't beholden to one barbarian group of soldiers as Alaric was. After Stilicho and Alaric, Roman generals returned to power like Constantius III and Aetius. But Ricimer had seized power with the help of several Germanic warbands, which now dominated the Italian army. We don't know exactly which German tribes these were, but the fact that Ricimer's father was Swabian and his mother Gothic, and both of highly aristocratic lineage, suggests he might have been commanding groups of Swavi and Goths. 
Historians have long debated what Rickimer's true objectives were. The distinguished historian J.B. Berry saw him as the link between Stilicho and Odoacer. We'll get to Odoacer in future episodes, but he was the German warlord who decided in 476 that it simply wasn't worth having an emperor anymore. So he packed up the imperial diadem and purple cloak and sent them to Constantinople with a note saying he didn't need them anymore. This is famously seen as marking the official end of the Western Empire. But Rickimer never took such a bold move as Odoacer in declaring his independence, although, as we'll discover, in fact, even Odoacer still requested the support of the Eastern Emperor. Rickimer was still at that interim stage where it wasn't entirely clear whether a German warlord needed a puppet emperor or not. So let's return to our narrative and find out what happened. The date is August 461 and Rickimer has just brutally killed Majorian. How did that go down? Well, the reaction was pretty mixed. On the one hand, the Roman Senate went along with it and indeed seems to have been a party to it. You may well be surprised to hear that. After all, wasn't the Roman Senate the heart of the old regime? Well, the answer seems that it was divided between two factions. Yes, one wanted to restore the Western Empire to its former glory, but the other wanted to be pragmatic and recognise that life had changed irreversibly and new solutions were needed, principally siding with the new powers that be, i.e. the Germans. Although our sources are extremely limited and we have very little insight into the machinations of the Senate, this would explain why at first Majorian received the Senate's backing for his projected imperial restoration and then suddenly lost its support as the pro-German senators gained the upper hand and opted to support Rickimer. I think what meagre evidence we have suggests the pro-German faction within the Senate was usually stronger than the imperialist one. And the evidence for this lies with widespread literary and archaeological evidence that the Italian aristocracy, as well as their Gallic cousins, were quite good at pandering to their new German masters. For example, the writings of Sidonius Apollinaris gives us a good insight into how he and his Gallic co-senators adjusted to the gradual Germanization of Gaul. This normally took the form of the wealthy landowners giving up a third or even sometimes two-thirds of their estates to the German invaders. In Italy, the surrender of property came later than in Gaul and was one of the reasons why Odoacer was supported by his German mercenaries, because he promised them senatorial land in Italy. But as we'll find out in later episodes, the Roman landowners didn't lose everything, even after the end of the Western Empire, when the Ostrogoths invaded Italy and set up their own Italian kingdom. The native Roman aristocracy remained largely in place and played an important role in government and politics. But to return to the 460s, although the Roman Senate was happy to go along with Ricimer's deposition of Majorian, the other remnants of the Western Empire were not. And there were two very significant remnants, probably as militarily as powerful as the army in Italy, and these were Gaul and Dalmatia. 
Both were controlled by Majorian supporters, and it's no surprise at all they both rejected Rickimer. The Magister Militum in Gaul was Egidius, who'd played a key role in Majorian's victory over the Visigoths in 458 at the Battle of Arles, and he vehemently opposed Rickimer. The Dalmatian Magister Militum was Marcellinus, who you may recall had broken away in 454 in disgust at Valentinian III's murder of Aetius. He'd supported Majorian and taken his troops to Sicily to support the planned attack on North Africa. Given the proximity to the Italian mainland, Marcellinus posed the most immediate threat to Ricimer, who responded by quickly bribing his army to defect shortly after his murder of Majorian in 461, which was easily done since Marcellinus's army was almost entirely composed of Hunnic mercenaries who were open to the highest bidder. This forced Marcellinus to return to Dalmatia, which was too far away to pose any direct threat to Ricimer. Before Ricimer turned his attention to Gaul, he decided to create his own puppet emperor. On the 19th of November 461, three months after murdering Majorian, he proclaimed a new emperor at Ravenna, a man named Libius Severus, an undistinguished senator about whom we know almost nothing except two sources say he was given the nickname Serpentius, meaning serpent or snake. While the reasons for this reptilian epithet are not immediately apparent, we have no reason to believe that Severus was anything other than completely servile to Ricimer. The only recognition Severus received was from the Roman Senate. In Constantinople, the Emperor Leo took no notice of him, and neither did Egidius or Marcellinus. We can only conclude that Ricimer, the virtual king of Italy, felt it was politically wise still to have a puppet emperor. Why, you might ask, was Constantinople not taking more interest in Ricimer's antics in Italy? The answer was simple. The Emperor Leo was too busy dealing with the challenges caused by Attila's imploding empire, in particular a large group of Ostrogoths who'd crossed the Danube and demanded tribute from the Eastern Empire, as well as the rump Hunnic state, led at this point by Attila's sons Dengizic and Ernak. But there was someone else keenly interested in developments in Italy, and that was Geyseric, king of the Vandals. Having sacked Rome in 455 and taken a group of imperial women back to Carthage, Geyseric was intent on ousting Ricimer and fancied taking up residence himself in the imperial palace on the Palatine Hill in Rome. Not only did he have a grandson, Hilderic, who had a claim to the Western throne since his parents were Geyseric's son, Huneric, and the princess Eudocia, but he was also holding as prisoners the former empress Licinia Eudocia and her other daughter Placidia. Placidia offered yet another route to the Western throne because she'd been betrothed to a senator called Alibrius, who'd fled to Constantinople. This gave Geyseric an opportunity to appeal to the Eastern Emperor Leo for an alliance in exchange for sending Placidia to her husband, who in fact she hadn't yet met. So, in 462, he sent Licinia Eudocia and Placidia to Constantinople in a gesture of goodwill. 
Meanwhile, Eudocia the Younger stayed with her husband and son. Geyseric was as cunning as a fox, and he wanted to keep alive as many claims on the Western throne as possible. So he now added to his grandson's claim by supporting Elibrius as another potential contender for the Western throne when he married Placidia in Constantinople. Why would Elibrius and his wife Placidia support Geyseric if they ever donned the purple? Well, Placidia seems to have had some sort of bond with Geyseric, since she was Eudocia's sister and perhaps simply born out of her good treatment when she was in Carthage. Historians remain divided about why Geyseric was so intent on the Western throne, but my sense is that the real motivation was probably more to do with internal politics and maintaining his own authority among the Vandal nobility. As mentioned in a previous episode, Vandal society was reasonably democratic and kings could be challenged. Geyseric's long reign had been successful – But if he wanted to ensure Huneric's succession, it was only going to help that he was married to an imperial princess and their son was a legitimate potential future emperor. Or indeed, if Elibrius was ever to get to the throne, he was at least related to Placidia as his daughter-in-law's sister. Meanwhile, back in Ravenna, Ricimer knew Geyseric wanted to depose him, but of more immediate concern was Egidius in Gaul. Egidius had a reasonably strong army, which, as mentioned before, probably contained some of the last legions in the Western Empire in the form of the old Rhine frontier garrison. With Majorian's barbarian mercenaries, he'd even defeated the Visigoths in 458. And now it was quite possible he could march on Italy to oust Ricimer. Ricimer's response was to make a man named Agrippinus, Magister Militum of Gaul. Agrippinus had been a Vetus's deputy, and a Vetus had been the hero of both the Gallic senators and the Visigoths when they made him emperor. So Agrippinus was rushed to Gaul, and in particular to the Visigothic court at Toulouse, where a deal was done. In exchange for giving the Visigoths support of Narbonne, they pledged to support Ricimer against a possible attack by Aegidius. This was the first clear evidence Ricimer was no true Roman. He was willing to cede what little remained of Roman Gaul to buy his own safety. Matters got even worse when Agrippinus disappeared in 463 with no source explaining why and was replaced as Magister Militum in Gaul by the Burgundian king Gundioc in exchange for land around Lyon. Appointing a barbarian king as Magister Militum was not a complete break with tradition since Alaric had been given a position in the Roman army, but it was certainly pushing the envelope. But while Ricimer was busily giving away what was left of Roman Gaul to the barbarians, Aegidius had other plans. Priscus suggests he was considering invading Italy to avenge Majorian's death. Quote, Aegidius, who had served with Majorian and who now possessed a sizable force, was incensed at the murder of the emperor, end quote. The Visigoths, now allies of Ricimer, lay in his path, and in 463, although the month is unknown, he led the Roman forces into battle with them near Orléans. The result was a Roman victory, and Theodoric's brother, Frederick, was killed in the battle. 
However, the Roman advance stopped there. We have almost no source material to explain why Egidius's progress suddenly petered out, other than a comment from a Frankish source that his Frankish allies, who were an important part of his army, fell to fighting each other. This was a big let-off for Ricimer but he had plenty of other enemies to contend with. Geyseric was increasingly frustrated that no one was taking seriously his claims on the Western throne, and so he stepped up his attacks on Sicily, Sardinia and the Italian mainland. Meanwhile, in 464, northern Italy was invaded by the Alans, led by their king, Beorgor. This was a direct threat to Ricimer, and he responded quickly and well, as he always did whenever he was threatened, defeating them in a pitched battle near Bergamo. Meanwhile, the puppet emperor Libius Severus died in November 465. One source says that Ricimer poisoned him, although why he would have wanted to do that remains unclear. Libius Severus's death passed as unnoticed as his life had been. Indeed, the only person who seems to have taken notice of it, was Ricimer, who now wondered whether there was any need for a Western emperor at all. Having a puppet emperor hadn't really helped him. He was still surrounded by enemies. Marcellinus was in Dalmatia, itching to depose him. Egidius wanted to do the same, although he died in 465, but there was no regime change, and his capable son, Siagrius, succeeded him and maintained just as hostile a position as before. Geyseric and the Vandals were upping the pressure on Ricimer by raiding the Italian coastline and occupying Sicily and Sardinia. Ricimer must have been wondering how long it would be before the Vandals ventured to attack Rome again. But just as the West was sinking into chaos, the Eastern Empire was starting to get its act together. So far, Leo I, the Eastern Emperor, had been too preoccupied with the Ostrogoths and Huns along the Danube frontier, as well as the Persians in the East, to take much notice of the Western Empire's plight. But change was afoot. The Eastern Roman army was getting stronger. Like its counterpart in the West, it had become used to recruiting German mercenaries, although it had never become completely reliant on them, as happened in the West. Its main general was a German, Aspar, in some ways similar to Ricimer. But another general was rising to prominence in the east, and this man was an Azorian from the mountains of Cilicia in modern-day Turkey called Zeno. He brought with him large native reinforcements for the Roman army. In 466 and 67, the expanded eastern army won victories over both the Ostrogoths and Huns. At the same time, Geyseric made a careless political mistake. His frustration at the lack of recognition for his claims to the Western throne had reached boiling point, and the Vandal ships launched an attack on Greece, which was, of course, part of the Eastern Empire. This was a disastrous blunder. Leo was already taking an interest in the West, and in 465 he had agreed to Marcellinus's request to go to Sicily with his troops to fight the Vandals supported by Constantinople. Now, 
Geyseric's impetuous attack on Eastern Roman territory tipped the scales. Geyseric had hoped to put pressure on Leo to support his suggestion to name Elibrius as Western Emperor and to depose Ricimer. But Geyseric's plans completely backfired. In the spring of 467, ignoring both Geyseric and Ricimer, the Eastern Emperor made Anthemius Western Emperor and sent him with Marcellinus's troops to Rome. The East was going to take over Italy, whether Ricimer liked it or not. Meanwhile, the harbours around Constantinople were busy. The air was filled with the noise of hammers as a great fleet of over a thousand ships was being constructed. This was accompanied by the sound of hobnailed boots marching as troops poured in from across the Eastern Empire. An invasion force was assembling, on a scale not seen since the Emperor Julian the Apostate had launched his great invasion of Persia a hundred years before. At long last, the Eastern Empire was about to launch its great offensive to reconquer the West. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And next time, we'll hear about the great invasion fleet sent by Leo to recapture Carthage in 468. It's one of my very favourite bits of late Roman history. And in the meantime, why not check out my new book, The Fall of Rome, which covers the events leading to the first sack of Rome in 410 by Alaric. It's on Amazon at only $3.99. And if you like it, please leave a review. That would be absolutely amazing. And also, please do visit my new website, nickholmesauthor.com, where I'm offering my very first book for free. It's set in the 11th century about the decline of the Byzantine Empire and the start of the Crusades. Thanks for listening and see you next time. 